Today's uh, lecture is going to be about amino acids and how amino acids are used to, um, and it's nice to see you all again, by the way. I missed you. I yeah, hope you had a good summer. Yeah. And um, yeah, yeah. And so um, we'll talk about some hormones and some clinical aspects of those hormones as they're derived from amino acids. Right. Pardon? Hi, Hussein. I missed you too. It's so nice to see you again. I hope you had a good summer. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I just like it when I remember somebody's name. You know, the coolest kids is the ones I remember. It's like, yeah, yeah. So I didn't mean to call you a kid. I feel like a kid too. I meant that, that way, you know, like together. Yeah, right. Okay, so, um, uh, right, so we're talking about uh, uh, amino acids and hormones that are derived from them. So it's uh, some reading suggestions, right? So we want to talk about some classes of hormones, and you're going to hear about the catecholamines over and over and over again. And the idea being that these are uh, uh, hormones or neurotransmitters that are derived from, from tyrosine. And the three catecholamine hormones that you need to know is dopamine, norepinephrine, and epinephrine. Ultimately, they're derived from phenylalanine, which is converted to tyrosine, which is then converted to L-dopa. And over and over and over again, and still 20% uh, of the class misses it on the exam, L-dopa is not a catecholamine. L-dopa is an amino acid. So you have to keep track of that. Right? Okay, so, so tyrosine basically is formed either from the degradation of phenylalanine itself or it's formed uh, or it's consumed in the diet. Right? So phenylalanine um, is dietary essential because right? the body can't make it. And if, I don't know if you remember from your uh, biochemistry course or general biology course when you were in uh, uh, Bachelor of Science courses, but the idea is, is that we don't ask you to memorize structures for medical biochemistry. That would be ridiculous. But if you kind of have a feel for what that structure looks like, it helps. And you could recognize that the humans and mammals really have lost the ability to create complex molecules like phenylalanine. And the reason for that is, is that mammals eat so much food. So we eat, have to eat so much just to keep our basal metabolic rate going, just to keep our, our um, temperature up, that we consume enough of that in our diet. Right, so then phenylalanine is then hydroxylated. The word hydroxylation means that we put an OH group onto it. And then L-dopa is really just phenylalanine that's been hydroxylated twice. Right, so dopamine is a very important neurotransmitter in the brain. You'll, you've already heard about it, of course, in layman's terms. It's important for the reward system. It's also very, very important for coordination of movements. Right? So people with Parkinson disease, of course, have a defect in their ability to create dopamine in the brain. So norepinephrine and epinephrine also very important as a sympathetic nervous system as well as neurotransmitters in the brain. Right, so these hormones and neurotransmitters work through G-protein-coupled receptors. Right, so some work through the uh, uh, PKA pathway, right, through cyclic AMP release, and some work through the PKC pathway through inositol trisphosphate diacylglycerol, stimulating calcium release, and then, of course, activating PKC. And, of course, this all depends on the G-protein-coupled receptor. So this, I think, we talked about in FTM, but I can promise you a thousand times from Sunday, you're going to see this over and over and over again in physiology, over and over and over again, 
and in pharmacology as well, so better keep it together. And the G-protein-coupled receptor, of course, seven-pass transmembrane receptor. It's got the extracellular domain where it binds to the hormone, intracellular domain, which tickles something else. And the thing it tickles is the G-alpha protein, which has GDP bound to it. So, of course, upon tickling, the GDP is released, allowing GTP to enter. That's the G-protein part of it. And depending upon the type of receptor, it's going to work through different things. So recall the G-alpha-Q, right? That's going to work through protein kinase C, right? And then the G, um, that's the alpha adrenergic, and then the beta adrenergic, of course, working through the uh, cyclic IMP pathway. So enough of that, but you, you've got to keep a handle on that, just reminding you. So phenylalanine uh, gets converted to tyrosine, and the uh, enzyme that does that is phenylalanine hydroxylase. And there's a cofactor for that is BH4. So BH4, it's a beautiful molecule, and the reaction is actually very beautiful as well of how we can get uh, a hydroxyl group onto a, an aromatic ring. So again, like now you've got to go back several years to organic chemistry, and recall that they took about three months in organic chemistry just talking about the chemical reactions on the ring, right, the, the aromatic ring. We're not going to talk about that. We're just going to say this is a really cool thing, enough, right? Okay, so we hydroxylated uh, tyrosine, excuse me, we hydroxylated phenylalanine to make tyrosine and using this cofactor, BH4, tetrahydrobiopterin, to do this. So then uh, tyrosine can be hydroxylated again. Essentially, it's the same reaction, so it's the same cofactor, BH4, tetrahydrobiopterin. And now we have L-DOPA. So in pink here, you can see that these are all three of these are amino acids. And in fact, I'm emphasizing that DOPA is an amino acid by calling it L-DOPA, meaning just like our, all of our L, other L-amino acids, this thing is, has, a, um, it's a stereo, has a stereoisomer, of course, the R form. And in nature, of course, almost all amino acids are of the L form, except for a few rare exceptions, right? Like in bacteria cell walls have an R version of alanine, of course. That's how we get an antibiotic. Penicillin works to stop those things from coming together. Okay. So microbiology, you'll get there next year. So DOPA then can be decarboxylated. And when you say the word decarboxylase, what that means is a carbon dioxide is coming off. And so what's formed then is, from L-DOPA, is dopamine. And now this is a different class of molecule. It's now considered an amine. So in, and because it has two hydroxyl groups on it, we learned in organic chemistry, you know, many years ago, a different lifetime ago, we learned that a benzene ring, an aromatic ring with two hydroxyl groups is a catechol, right? So that's, that's where the name catecholamine comes from. So dopamine is a catecholamine. Dopamine can then be hydroxylated, meaning an OH group, a hydroxyl group gets put on somewhere else, and we have norepinephrine. And then the norepinephrine can be methylated, a methyl group gets put on, and then it becomes epinephrine. So that's the difference in those molecules. And SAM, S-adenosylmethionine, is the uh, cofactor, or it's, excuse me, it's the, the delivery system for that methyl group. And then um, phenylethanolamine and methyltransferase, or PNMT, is the enzyme that uh, uh, methylates norepinephrine to form epinephrine. So there we have our three uh, catecholamine uh, hormones. Okay, so the structures are not going to be on the exam, but half of the class, my, my memory serves me correctly, half of us really see it this way, and so it's going to help just for, just for that. But again, the structures aren't on the test. All right, so uh, phenylalanine is hydroxylated to form tyrosine. Here's tyrosine with the OH group and this aromatic ring. So then we have a BH4-dependent second hydroxylation to form L-DOPA, so L-DOPA as an amino acid. It's an amino acid because it has an amino group and a carboxyl group on this alpha carbon right 
here, right? Okay, so then the decarboxylation event happens, so the alpha carboxyl group comes off of L-dopa to form dopamine, and then dopamine can be hydroxylated somewhere off the ring using vitamin C, and then we methylate somewhere else on the molecule. And notice somewhere else, it doesn't matter really where it is for you because it's, you're not going to show you the structures, and that's PNMT with SAM as the methyl donor. So it's actually pretty important in our next module, right, in the DM module, we're going to have a whole one-hour discussion just upon homocysteine and the fate of homocysteine and why it's such an important molecule and, of course, the function of SAM and how it gets there as well as molecules like folic acid because we hear about all these all over the place. So we're going to spend a full hour just talking about moving these one carbons around and its importance. Okay, so catecholamine, especially a dopamine, is really important in the, in the brain. Of course, as a reward center, is also for control of movement disorders. So this is a brief little story about Mr. C. He's in his late 40s, healthy, and he notices that things start going wrong, right? Things aren't working the way they used to. He has a movement disorder, right? He's walking stooped over. He's not able to move his arms, swing as much as he used to. An experienced uh, person... Uh, I'm not even saying physician, oftentimes an experienced person can pick this out, right? And in fact, it was first described in 1817 by James Parkinson in England. He called it the shaking palsy. And so, uh, so it was first described, and he actually described this as a kind of a medical study while he was walking around London. You know, he says, oh, he's got it, he's got it, he's got it, he's got it. And in fact, about 1% of anybody over six year, 60 years old, 1% of the population over 60 years old has this disorder. Right? So it's something that you will see. If you don't know somebody that has it, it's because you're too young and you haven't been listening or looking. Right? So it's, you'll be seeing this. Right? So remember, you have to understand that to understand this disorder, you have to keep in mind the difference between L-dopa and dopamine. Right? So, so Parkinson disease really is a neurodegenerative disorder, and it's a loss of the dopamine-producing cells in the basal ganglia of the brain. So normally, these neurons in the basal ganglia have to produce enough um, uh, dopamine to allow normal movements to occur through the, those neural circuits. And you'll learn all about that in the NB module towards the end of this, this semester. So this movement disorder is characterized by spasticity, tremors, loss of memory, mood disturbances, sometimes postural instability, these kind of things. Okay, so, so in this case, this is an example of a movement disorder or a, or a neurological disorder that's occurring through uh, reduced formation or loss of the formation of a catecholamine. In this case, it's, it's dopamine as a neurotransmitter. Right, so this story can go on. We'll talk about treatment of it and other things in which, which exists, but um, we'll cut it, cut it there for now to continue for today and get back to it later. Okay, so uh, when we form these catecholamines, they also have to be degraded in the body, right? So epinephrine and norepinephrine can be degraded through a various kind of systems called the MAO system and the COMT. The COMT stands for the catechol O-methyl transferase, and that just means that there's a methyl group being put onto that catechol, right? And the monoamine oxidase means that this monoamine is being oxidized. So there are two ways of just basically modifying that molecule so it can no longer serve its function as a signaling molecule and instead get it degraded and get it out of the body. So the, I'm not asking you 
to memorize like all of those things because you shouldn't memorize things that are not actually a clinical test. And the most important one is vanillyl mendelic acid, right? So VMA, because that's the end product that happens after the degradation of the catecholamines, epinephrine and norepinephrine. Now, because typically these aren't produced at an appreciable amount, even when they're overproduced, they're still very, very low. It has to be done, or to measure these, you need a 24-hour test. So you have to collect urine for 24 hours, right? So dopamine is also degraded through the same uh, pathway, and of course, we want to think about what's actually measured as a clinical uh, measurement, clinical lab test, and that's homovanillic acid is measured as the degradation product of dopamine. So pretend that there's a patient that had uh, Parkinson disease and he's taking uh, L-dopa pills to uh, try to ameliorate those, those movement disorders. Of course, that person is likely to have elevated levels of homovanillic acid in his urine if you collected the urine over 24 hours to, to see that. Okay, so there's a disorder associated with the overproduction of a, of, a, of a catecholamine. So if you remember where the idea where the adrenal glands are, the two little glands on top of the kidneys, well, they're responsible for producing um, a lot of the, the epinephrine and norepinephrine that's used in the sympathetic response. And so if a person has a tumor in those adrenal glands, sometimes the very presence of a tumor means that there's gonna be more metabolic activity in those tumor cells. Those tumor cells sometimes, not all the time, but oftentimes will start doing more of what they normally do as a consequence of being a tumor cell, right? So that if there's a tumor in the adrenal glands, it's called a pheochromocytoma, right? And so those uh, tumors in the adrenal glands then sometimes will secrete more um, these catecholamine hormones than they normally should. And of course, then that person basically is always having these stress hormones coursing through their, their body. And this is going to lead to heart palpitations of increasing frequency and severity, uh, um, headaches, anxiety, panic attacks, sweating, hypertension, tachycardia, these kind of things. These kind of the predominant, the predominant symptoms. Right? So the idea then is, is that because we... We, because we uh, have a way to test the output of those catecholamines, we can then say, well, let's do a 24-hour urine test and say, collect the urine from this person. But the important thing is, is during a symptomatic episode. So if the person's not experiencing the symptoms, then it wouldn't, it wouldn't work, right? So while the person's experiencing those tachycardia or these, these, these symptoms of, of, of overproduction of, of catecholamines, then it could could um, uh, diagnose this adrenal medulla tumor, this pheochromocytoma. And so, of course, what's being measured is, is the vanilla mendelic acid. Right? So all of these uh, catecholamine molecules are degraded by uh, the monoamine oxidase and the, uh, the catecholamine O-methyltransferase. Right, so, so norepinephrine, epinephrine degraded to eventually form VMA, 24-hour test, and dopamine degraded to form homovanillic acid. So changing gears and talking about tryptophan. So tryptophan amino acid, again, showing you the structure here. The idea is not to have you memorize the structure. And in fact, uh, uh, I'll admit it myself, if you said, Dr. Sobering, draw the structure of tryptophan, and I not looking at the you know, cheat sheet, I can't do it, right? 
and I don't accept, who needs to, right? But what I can do is I can say, I know that's the only amino acid that has two rings, and one of those rings is um, aromatic, right? So it's the classic uh, benzene ring here, aromatic ring. And because it's that classic um, aromatic ring, it can then be hydroxylated just like phenylalanine can be hydroxylated to tyrosine, just like tyrosine can be hydroxylated to uh, L-DOPA. Okay, so serotonin is derived from tryptophan, and then melatonin is derived from, from serotonin in a couple of steps, so we don't have to go through that. Okay, so these two molecules have both uh, neurotransmitter function as well as uh, hormone functions, right? And they work, th the, they work through uh, G-coupled protein receptors and ligand-gated ion channels, really important. Right, so the majority of the tryptophan, excuse me, the majority of the serotonin that's formed in the body is actually formed in the gut, even though we always talk about serotonin as being that all-important uh, hormone that we, or neurotransmitter that we get when we eat turkey dinner. That's why, at least in the United States, on, is it November 27th? One of those no no Thursdays in November, we have a holiday in the United States where we have to eat turkey, and we sit there and we watch, we, the, Right, so, uh, it, you know, I'm going to say something sexist, but it's a joke, I guess. The men watch football, and, you know, actually, in my family, the men would cook the turkey and clean up as well. But I'm going to make the joke that I see in the cartoons. <laughs> it's like, my dad just loves, he puts on a big hat, big white hat, and he calls himself the chef, and he does all the, he takes over the kitchen. Yeah, and so, but, you know, like, if you eat a big turkey dinner, everybody says, oh, I got all that tryptophan, it's making me sleepy. Well, it's not really the tryptophan, it's other stuff in that, that's derived from it, even if that's, that's true or not. Anyway, uh, let me stop making bad, inappropriate jokes here about kitchen duties. Okay. <laughs> okay, so, um, so this, the majority of the serotonin actually in the body is actually synthesized in the, in the gut as to, to regulate gastric motility, right? And so, of course, we need it in the uh, central nervous system as, as well, right? So, um, so the first step then is this tryptophan is hydroxylated to 5-hydroxytryptophan. And from this, because all we've done is, is that we've hydroxylated the ring of, of, of tryptophan, we now have um, a, a still another amino acid. And here's a, like a kind of a point of contention that a lot of biochemists have with we're talking about molecules. We should make sure we understand that when we talk about the amount of how many amino acids are found in the human body, right? So sometimes people say there's 20. Well, actually, no, there's a lot more than that, right? There's 20 common amino acids that we commonly find in proteins, right? But in a sense, there's many, many, many more. I'm not even going to dare to give a number. There's many, many more amino acids that might be found in the body. And here's an example. 5-hydroxytryptophan is an amino acid. You don't find it in proteins, but you do find it as part of the pathway for the synthesis of serotonin because after 5-hydroxytryptophan, it can be decarboxylated, and then, bam, we immediately have uh, serotonin. So here's just, like in a sense, another example of how from an amino acid, very quickly, that amino acid can be converted into a signaling molecule, very important for, for regulating or for signaling for how some other bodily function should be carried out. And in a sense, this is a, a very important aspect because at all times, the body has what we call an amino acid pool. And the amino acid pool is uh, always this constant circulation of some 
amount of amino acids, of those 20 common amino acids that we're going to get from either dietary intake or from de novo synthesis if they're non-essential, dietary non-essential. So they're always there. The sense that those amino acids always have to be on demand. So therefore, cells always should have a ready supply of an amino acid like tryptophan to make serotonin when it's needed, right? So if it's needed in the brain, it can make it. When it's needed in the gut, it can make it. Okay, so with some modifications, we're not going to go through that pathway because it's just more uh, biochemical geekery, right? But it's, uh, the serotonin is converted into melatonin, and then the serotonin can be degraded through the monoamine oxidase enzyme, same kind of enzyme that works on um, catecholamines, to work on serotonin to form 5-hydroxyindole acetic acid, and of course that's what's excreted in the urine. So there's examples of uh, overproduction of serotonin due to a, a tumor, right? And so here's an example where Mrs. L, she experiences diarrhea, flushing symptoms, and at first she says, oh, I'm just getting older, and it's nothing, no big deal, so she ignores it. But then it gets worse, and then she soon feels very sick. She goes to the to the to the hospital, and then she wakes up to find out that she's gone through a, an emergency surgery. And it turns out that they were told that uh, she has a carcinoid uh, cancer, right? So it's carcinoid cancer. So the carcinoid cancer is a cancer that happens in some of the cells that are lining the gut. And these are very specific cells called the APUD cells. And I know that Dr. Kopelman probably has already told you about these. These are stands for the amine precursor uptake and decarboxylation cells. So the job of these cells are to take up these uh, amino acids, right, and convert them into amine precursors, right? And so in this case, the amine precursor would be tryptophan is converted to 5-hydroxytryptophan, converted into serotonin. And these are the cells that secrete the appropriate amount of serotonin to allow appropriate regulation of gastric motility. Remember, gastric motility is only supposed to go in one direction. We're supposed to eat and then defecate, right? It's not supposed to go the other way, right? And then this is serotonin that kind of it, it makes that happen. Right? But too much of the serotonin, of course, is going to cause all kinds of problems, cutaneous flushing accompanied by sweating, gastric <laughs> intestinal hypermotility, bronchospasms, and of course, all of this can be um, is, is due to the uh, elevated levels of the, the tryptophan, um, excuse me, the serotonin that's now um, now in circulation. And this can be measured by of the same idea that of, as we have for the, the pheochromocytoma, a 24-hour uh, uh, urine test measuring 5-hydroxyindole acetic acid. Okay, so. The serotonin is also degraded, right? And this is where we, so it's, de it's, it's okay, degraded by the monoamine oxidase system. And so the central nervous system aspect of, of serotonin is very important in, in psychi psychiatrics, right? So there's various kinds of, of molecules or, or drugs that can be given that change the levels of serotonin then that's in the central nervous system. And two main ones, there's a lot of these, but I think we'll just touch on two of them now as an examples, are the monoamine oxidase inhibitors and the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And so the idea is that the, the monoamine oxidase inhibitor will slow down the degradation of the serotonin in the brain, and therefore that serotonin is available for a longer period of time in the synapse because it's not being degraded as fast, and then this you know, is, is, being, is, is used. Right? Another one that is not a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, instead it's called a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, and this is because in the synapse after a, a neurotransmission event happens, that 
the neighboring neuro, neurons will try to scavenge or reuptake some of those, those signaling molecules. And if you slow down that process, again, the serotonin stays in the synapse for a longer period of time, allowing more time for it to exert its neurotransmitter function. So these will be coming back again in a big way um, at the end of your semester, so you'll hear about more of these later. So when you do, you can say, oh, I know a lot about serotonin and where it came from, from tryptophan and this kind of thing, and how eventually it, um, you know, ultimately it came from the diet. Okay, so melatonin, as derived from serotonin, which was derived from tryptophan, is a very important molecule for regulating our light-dark cycle or our circadian rhythm. Right? So remember we had uh, tryptophan got converted to 5-hydroxytryptophan, which got converted into 5-hydroxytryptamine. Notice the name changes now. It's an amine serotonin. It's modified to form melatonin. You do not need to know the structure of melatonin, but just the idea that it's produced in the brain and its uh, synthesis is suppressed by bright light. And then as soon as it gets dark, then it, it gets synthesized and comes on. And that's, what, of course, what makes us, makes us feel tired. So it's very important in the maintenance of circadian uh, rhythm. Right? And so when you're feeling this uh, maximum uh, sleepiness, it's, it, co it correlates with the, the maximal melatonin production. Now, I don't know about you, but I always think about this every time I come back to Grenada. When I'm in New York City, I'm not sleepy, right? Because it's just so bright there all the time, right? So I'm up till midnight. I get to Grenada, 6.45 p.m. <laughs> it's like, bam, the light's gone out. And I'm like, oh, I want to go to bed, <laughs> you know? It's like time to read Harry Potter and go to bed, right? That's the way it is. Okay. And that's, of course, because it gets so dark so fast. But not only that, it's been so bright all day that I've had, you know, where it, if I feel like in New York, it's just never as bright as it is in the day. But at night, it's never as, as, as dark as it is, is here. So, so I always feel more sleepy when I get back to the Caribbean. I had some friends in Denmark where the winters were very long, and they had this room in their house which was just lined with all of these bright lights that they had. And this is called their SAD light therapy. And the SAD stands for the Seasonal Effectiveness Disorder, right? And so that's a, an advertisement. That's not their house, but um, they had something like that in their house. Okay, so we should make sure we focus a little bit on tetrahydrobiopterin. And TH, uh, uh, this BH4, it's the B is from biopterin, so, so biopterin. Are you there? Oh, sorry. Okay. Uh, it cut out for a second. So tetrahydrobiopterin is the coenzyme that's required for those amino acid hydroxylation reactions, which I just spoke to you about, like phenylalanine to tyrosine, hydroxylation, tyrosine to L-dopa, and conversion of tryptophan to hydroxytryptophan, right? So these are all basically the same reaction, in a sense, because the enzyme is simply taking uh, oxygen and putting it onto an aromatic ring to allow it to be hydroxylated. Right, so think about what happens. Now notice, this is an important point. Notice I did not call this a vitamin. It's not a vitamin, right? We can make our own biopterin molecule by our own metabolic pathways. We don't need to go into that pathway, right? Because it's just another, another pathway. But the idea is, is that we can make it ourselves. The other thing about it is it's like one of these classic redox reactions. When the tetrahydrobiopterin does its job, it leaves behind 
dihydrobiopterin, which then has to be reduced back to its active form, powered by NADPH. And of course, remember NADPH, you learned about that last semester and how it can be formed through the pentose phosphate pathway, right? So all of these kind of pathways interact with, with each other. Right? But the idea is, is that phenylalanine is converted to tyrosine using BH4. Tyrosine is converted to L-DOPA, which is important for catecholamines using BH4. And tryptophan is converted to 5-hydroxytryptophan, which is then used to make serotonin, but you need BH4 to do it, right? So all three of these things, production of, of, well, production of tyrosine, production of the catecholamines, and production of serotonin are all dependent on BH4. So if a person is deficient in the ability to manufacture BH4 through its own pathway, or that person is deficient in the enzyme which allows it to be repetitively, repetitively used, the dihydroteridine reductase enzyme, the person is deficient in either one of those, then that person will have elevated phenylalanine. There's going to have a massively high circulating levels of phenylalanine, but they're also going to have the inability to produce catecholamines, right? They're not going to be able to make dopamine, they're not going to, and the neurotransmitter, and they're not going to be able to make epinephrine. They're not going to also be able to make serotonin. So they're going to have all kinds of really big problems, right? And there's a name for this. It's called PKU2, right? PKU2. That's the name for that. Okay. So we'll come back. We're going to talk about that again in the DM module, but it's just good to point that out now because we just spoke all about, about those reactions. Oh, I have a timer. Oh, I don't have a timer. Crap. Sorry. Do that again. Mm -hmm. But you know what the answer is, right? So dihydroxyphenylalanine, what is that? What is that molecule, dihydroxyphenylalanine? L-DOPA. She said it, right? 5-hydroxyindole acetic acid, that comes from serotonin degradation. Tetrahydrobiopterin is the cofactor, and histamine is a signaling molecule that comes from histidine, which is important for the allergic response and for maintaining uh, gut acidity in the stomach. Right? Okay, so there's my smiley face, good. So our correct answer is dopa decarboxylase. That's the right answer, right? So what's going on here is, is that L-dopa has to be decarboxylated, and then that forms dopamine, right? So phenyl phenylethanolamine and methyltransferase forms 
uh, epinephrine as we transfer a methyl group from SAM onto uh, norepinephrine, and tyrosine hydroxylase forms L-DOPA, and the monoamine exudase is for degradation. Right, so this is my trick question for the day. And of course, we're all having those correct because all of these things are affected. And that's a major point there because you can imagine there's another way that a person could have hyperphenylalanemia, right? If you have a deficiency of the enzyme which converts phenylalanine to tyrosine. That, that disorder called PKU1 is easily treatable, right? because that person you just restrict phenylalanine in the diet and that person's perfectly okay. This person though has deficiency of the synthesis of the cofactor, so all of these other things are affected. He has hyperphenylalanemia, but he also doesn't have catecholamines or serotonin. Change gears, let's talk about thyroid hormone. Notice a lot of what we're talking about today is focusing on tyrosine, so tyrosine is just kind of continuing that theme. In this case, we're talking about the synthesis and the function of thyroid hormone and how it's formed in a sense, as a post-translational modification. And the reason for this is, is that the thyroid um, cell, the follicular cell of the thyroid, manufactures a protein called thyroglobulin. So you see this word globulin, globulin. Typically, that means that that thing is a protein. You've, you'll see that name again as an immunoglobulin. That's a globular protein. That means it's a blob, right? It's a globular protein which functions in the immune system. In this case, it's a thyroid, thyroglobulin protein because it's found in the thyroid gland. So the idea is, is that the tyrosine amino acids are iodinated. That means that sub, the, the ring of that tyrosine is substituted with an iodine uh, atom and then that occurs on the protein, then the protein is degraded and the hormone is released. So we're gonna go through that story, right? So the control of, of this production is hormonally regulated through the first from the hypothalamus where this hormone called uh, thyrotropin-releasing hormone is released. Thyrotropin-releasing hormone then stimulates the pituitary gland to release the thyroid-stimulating hormone. And sometimes that's called thyro tropin. So here's another thing, or here we have this word tropin, tropin. So this word tropin or tropic means that it's making something happen, right? So if you see that root word, that means it's making something happen. And then we have the, that the thyrotropin or the thyroid stimulating hormone tells the thyroid gland to, be due, uh, to make some thyroid hormone. So 90% of the thyroid hormone that's formed in the thyroid gland is released as the inactive or the less active T4 version. T4 means that there's four iodines on it. And then, so, but then uh, if, if some tissues, you can have local conversion to the more active T3 version. And of course, this all works through or a gene regulation through the thyroid hormone receptor to have appropriate regulation of the basal metabolic rate. Right? So there's various steps in the production or formation of thyroid hormone. First, there has to be a trapping of iodine in the thyroid follicular cell. Then it has to be iodinated, and that happens in the, the, the colloid of the, of the thyroid gland. I'll show you a picture of that in a second. That happens on the thyroglobulin protein. And then those 
there's this, if you can imagine, I don't know like how much protein chemistry that you, you can envision. Let's imagine that my body is the thyroglobulin uh, protein. So, and the hands are where some tyrosines are. Well, this tyrosine might get some iodines, and this hand might get some tyrosines. But when that protein folds, they can come really close together. So just because two amino acids in a protein might be separated by hundreds or thousands of other amino acids, and after folding, they might come really close together to allow them to be coupled together. So then the thyroid hormone then is released, and in various tissues, this can be, well, either in the thyroid gland, but most of it happens in local tissues, then some of the T4 can be converted into its more active form by the enzyme 5 prime deiodinase. And notice that there's a prime there. That means it has to be taking off in the right place. Because you can think about it that these, like most biomolecules, exist in both left-handed and right-handed isoforms, right? So it's got to be the correct one. And then the teeth, the 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 T4 can also be deactivated and taken out of commission if the different or the wrong iodine comes off, and that's the, the 5 prime deiodinase, right? So the different enzymes can either activate or deactivate the thyroid hormone. So this is kind of a cross-section picture of what the thyroid gland looks like. We have the thyroid follicular cells, the thyroid cell, and then we have the colloid, which is um, some material that's inside of various kind of spheres of these uh, uh, thyroid follicular cells. And there's lots of blood supply through these uh, capillary cells. So there's a nice vascularization there. Okay. okay. So here's a picture, I think, from the Lippincott's textbook, kind of taking you through how this happens. So in step one, in a sense, so we start over here. In step one, iodine is trapped in the thyroid cell. Okay. At the same time, amino acids are coming in because there's plenty of amino acids in the blood supply as the amino acid pool, and we can synthesize our thyroglobulin protein. So the thyroglobulin protein is then secreted into the lumen, the follicular lumen that's inside the sphere of these uh, thyroid um, cells. And the iodine is also exported into that, uh, follicular, uh, that, that, that luminal space. Okay. So the thyroid, the, the thyroperoxidase uh, enzyme then is now responsible for putting the iodine onto appropriate tyrosine amino acids on the thyroglobulin protein and coupling it together to form either uh, T3 or T4. Then that is then imported back into the thyroid follicular cell where that thing is then chopped up with some molecular scissors, happens in the lysosome, and then we can secrete out the T3 and T4 into the blood. Right? And so in other ways, of, uh, in more detail, again, you don't have to see this on the exam. right? I'm showing this because I just love this uh, molecular geekery here of showing a radical formation to allow this coupling to actually occur. But here we have a cartoon showing the thyroglobulin uh, protein. Here's the amino terminus and the carboxyl terminus. And we have two uh, amino acids which are far away in primary sequence, but close together after folding of the protein. And they've been iodinated. In this case, we have a diiodination, a diiodination, right? So there's four iodines. If these things couple together on the enzyme, you know, by the action of the enzyme um, uh, thyroperoxidase, then we're going to now have, that's where the coupling reaction happens, and then we will have the two tyrosines now are covalently linked together via that side chain, and that's what's happening on the thyroperoxidase enzyme. So now, 
after this gets imported back into the thyroid follicular cell, if this gets clipped out after the degradation of the thyroglobulin, we're going to have the inactive form of uh, thyroid hormone as T4. Okay? So this is just really this, this is the same thing, but just a different picture. Amino acids come in so we can form thyroglobulin. Iodine comes in to the thyroid cell. Then that gets secreted out of the thyroid cell into the luminal space of the colloid. And we allow the thyroglobulin to be iodinated. We have then coupling to happen, and then it's reabsorbed back into the, the thyroid cell <coughs> where the lysosome enzymes can de de degrade the thyroid hormone into T3 and T4 and release it into the blood. Okay? So that's kind of how, the, in a sense, the, the big picture of how thyroid hormone is produced. Okay? So I just said that, and it would be rude of me to read it to you. Right? Okay. So the T3 acts via gene regulation. So the thyroid hormone then enters into the cell by some kind of facilitated mechanism, gets it in the cell. Then the T3 hormone can interact with a gene regulation receptor, right? It's called the, the hormone receptor, right? So that, that thyroid hormone receptor, when it interacts with the thyroid hormone, it's activated, and that molecule is now competent to find its place on the DNA where it can then recruit the various gene expression machinery like other kinds of cofactors, RNA polymerase II, all of this assembles to allow appropriate gene expression and upregulation of gene expression. And it's those genes that are expressed that then says, this is how we're going to appropriately regulate the basal metabolic rate. So iodine deficiency can result in a hypothyroidism, right? So the idea is, is that there's not enough iodine in circulation, so the signal comes from the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland make more uh, thyroid hormone, and so the thyroid itself grows bigger and bigger to try to do this, but there's not enough iodine to manufacture it, so we end up with what's called a goiter. So this is a picture, I think, also from, from uh, uh, Lippincott's. We also have a condition called congenital hypothyroidism. So the thyroid hormone is absolutely essential for the developing fetus, so not enough of it is going to cause all kinds of uh, irreversible, very, very severe um, problems with the developing fetus, like intellectual disability, hearing loss, seizures, short stature, all these terrible problems. So Graves' disease is a situation not that's caused by, uh, w w it's not that there's a, uh, okay, so that the Graves' disease is essentially a condition caused by the overproduction of thyroid hormone. And the reason for that is, is that the immune system is creating an antibody which mimics the form or the shape of the thyroid-stimulating hormone. So the thyroid-stimulating hormone is not being overproduced. Instead, the immune system is making an antibody that, in a sense, stimulates the same receptor that thyroid-stimulating horm thyroid hormone is going to stimulate. And this results in an unregulated overproduction of thyroid hormone. And of course, if you have too much thyroid hormone, now you're having an increased basal metabolic rate, and the person has these, these bulging eyes that's very characteristic of this Graves' disease, and that's because all of this um, heightened or, or, or increased basal metabolic rate is leading to um, consumption of fat deposits all over the body, so the person, in a sense, is uh, 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 weight losses, and it's characterized by these, these eyes, and increased perspiration, uh, elevated heart rate, protruding eyes, these kind of things. Right? I'd like to show, in a sense, like kind of like an overview of all of this, like how 
a lot of what we spoke about today is thinking about things in terms of tyrosine. And we have more of these to, to talk about later, right? So uh, next uh, block in the D DM module, we'll talk about lots of disorders associated with metabolic blocks and the catabolism of tyrosine. How important it is that have tyrosine in the amino acid pool, right, for the formation of proteins and anabolic synthesis. Today we spoke about catecholamines and we spoke about the thyroid hormone. And then there's other things also associated with thyroid, like synthesis of melanin, very important for skin pigmentation. And I think with that, I'm going to uh, stop and leave you for your next thing that you have to do. And I so much appreciate your attention. Let me talk about amino acids because I love amino acids. <coughs> and I get to talk about it. It just makes me so happy. Yeah.